Welcome to Tuesdays with Andrea. It's the inspiration station for everyday people guiding humanity forward. I'm your host, Andrea Rios McMillan, and every week I pursue conversations that matter with people who can relate to the common struggles we all face. You'll get to know the person behind the profession and find commonality with people of all ages, cultures, and backgrounds. Listen as friends, neighbors, and coworkers offer meaningful, personal explorations of modern life and the values we hold dear, all for the purpose of strengthening and uplifting others. Thank you for tuning in to Tuesdays with Andrea podcast. I'm Andrea, and today we have special guest, Mr. John Lace. He is activist and carpenter and is running for mayor for the city of Aurora. So welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. I'm excited to talk with you because you are running for mayor. You're right in the middle of a campaign. We have what, a, a month, not even left until the elections. You've been busy trying to get the message out. So I'm interested to learn more about your platform, to learn more about why you're running, as well as to hear what insights you can share with the audience. So let's start off with where you're at right now. Okay. So I feel like we're in a good position. Okay. We're getting a lot of momentum every day. I'm getting 10 new Facebook friends and people calling and texting saying they want yard signs. Uh, we had probably 35, 45 people out knocking on doors this weekend, which is tremendous. Great weather for so it. It is. I, th- I thought it was because they wanted us to win, but it's the great <laughs> weather. <laughs> it worked in your favor this weekend. I think it's going to be great weather from now until the election. I'm being very optimistic about it. Okay. Um, but we're feeling very positive momentum. The thing that I've been at work for well over a decade since 2004 is to see if we could have people-powered campaigns. There's two ways to go when you run for office. One way is to go to the insiders and the people with money and ask for their endorsements and, you know, raise money from the rich people who have money. So you sit on the phone all day and you talk to rich people. And then when you get to office, guess who you're going to represent? Mm-hmm. So we've been trying over the years to build people-powered campaigns. I've been successful in some efforts and learned lessons on the other efforts. But, you know, I started in 2004 when the Iraq war started. I'd served over in the Middle East doing intelligence work. I knew we didn't have weapons of mass destruction. What branch of the military? U.S. Navy. Okay. And Thank you for your service. Yeah. And, you know, we, we started learning, and I ran against Dennis Hastert, um, the same way, not taking money from big business. And Hastert had $5 million, so it was kind of a David and Goliath thing. We did very well, almost won that congressional seat in 2008 when Hastert retired, but fell short. Again, I was spent 14 to 1. What made you run for that? When you got back and, and you had just served, what positioned you to want to campaign? So I did go to college in between. I got out of the military in uh, 99 okay. and finished up at Illinois State University, and that's when... Uh, George Bush was saying that there were weapons of mass destruction. I had gone initially thinking I would, there was bad intelligence. I would go rejoin the intelligence community. And my friends all said, no, it's political. You should get involved in politics. So I found an anti-war candidate to work for. And then my younger brother got called up to go serve in 2005. And he had said, why don't you run, move home and, and run against Denny Hastert? So he was still in the National Guard and... You know, when he when he said that, of course, I was going to do it. Yeah. So that's that's what kicked it all so your off. Your brother. Mm-hmm. And and he is now. Uh, you know, he did three tours over there. He's a hundred percent disabled, and um, you know, his kids suffer from it. Mm, I'm sorry to hear that. But 
It's what happens when you have big oil driving the agenda in our foreign policy. And it's played a role in this race too, right? I want to make Aurora Green New Deal City. And we have to get off our fossil fuel addiction if we are going to save the planet. Scientists have given us 10 years. So you can see how some of these pieces are interconnected, right? We're, we're spending billions of dollars fighting to protect our access to oil and energy. Instead, we could be putting all that money into electric vehicles, electrifying houses, making houses more energy efficient. It's just a choice of where we're going to put the money. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, realizing that this summer, past summer, I was on a a Democratic Party platform committee and pushed a number of amendments. One of them was that we would stop subsidizing fossil fuels. The U.S. taxpayers subsidize fossil fuel companies to the tune of $20 billion a year. And my amendment got pulled. They broke the rules it caused a little bit of national media stir. And that's when I started looking at this and saying, what can we do locally? You know, I've already made my own house 80% more energy efficient. How did you do that? So as, as a carpenter, I have a, a leg up. I chose Aurora and chose this historic home because I wanted to take something old and make it new and energy efficient and yet preserve its historic character. So I have this really old 116-year-old um, Victorian house and I've kept all the beautiful pocket doors and everything, but I've been, uh, ripping out the plaster and lath, replacing the lead pipes, replacing the old wiring with conduit and then re-insulating. And mm-hmm. there's a, a number of techniques that can be used. So the Germans have figured out how to build a house that can be literally heated with a blow dryer. I uh, wish. Right. I wish. So, you right? Know, so you're just paying a, a couple bucks a year. Like since to, the pandemic, you, you know what my electricity bill is? A lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot. And your electricity's bill. Everything went up. Mm-hmm. And, and your electricity bill has gone up because they passed a bill in Springfield that said we're going to increase the amount that we can charge people to. So it's not just because you're here using more, the, the rate has increased. And part of that money gets put towards energy efficiency work and gets towards putting solar panels on people's roofs. So there is money out there that if we have an aggressive program that helps people find if energy efficiency improvements or move them to solar, we can bring all that money into our local economy here in Aurora. So when you say Green New Deal, you're talking about making homes more efficient, saving money in having homeowners save money in that regard, but while spending more money on electrical work or reconfiguring some of the inner workings of a household to make it more efficient, which to your point, will bring more jobs, create more jobs for other people. Mm -hmm. Is that what you mean? That's the plan. That's the plan. Go green, create better jobs, address crime, address poverty. Mm -hmm. That's what, that's what we're after. We want to target the training for those jobs to people who live in Aurora, people that have lost their jobs during the pandemic, people that are working poverty wage job at McDonald's, fast food, people that slip through the cracks in our education system, people who might be re-entering society after serving their time. Uh, we want to make sure those people have jobs because we don't want them to go back to a life of crime. And, you know, there's actually a lot of work. It's, it's not just solar panels. That's a, what a lot of people think, but a lot of it is insulation and attic work and crawling around attics and taking the old dirty insulation out, air sealing it, and then putting new insulation in mm-hmm. uh, with a much higher R value. 
you can go to different levels, right? You could double the cost to your house if you want to rip all the siding off and add eight inches of insulation to the outside. Mm -hmm. It's basically like an igloo cooler with a controlled ventilation system. So is that what you want every homeowner to do? Uh, If you win for mayor, is the Green New Deal, is that the top of the agenda? It's not mandatory. We're going to create incentives and help people get there that want to get there. There's going to be people that are perfectly happy with where they're at and will never change. And we're not, we don't, we won't have the resources to change everybody's house at once. I'm very pragmatic in our thinking that if we train 10 people the first year, retrofit a hundred homes the first year, okay. it'll start to spread. So and, start small. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you have to yeah. work with the resources you have. Now, if we're able to accrue billions of dollars from the federal government, we'll Great. Put a lot Perfect. more people. We'll put a lot more people to work, and they should be serious about this, right? Mm-hmm. We've got ten years, and and it pains me that very few people, with the exception of AOC and Bernie Sanders, are talking about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a few others that that are putting it first and foremost to their platform. Uh, Jay Inslee's done an excellent job as a governor and and showing what a state can do. And Illinois actually is pretty progressive in the bill that we passed with combat. It's not, it wasn't a perfect bill, but it does create some resources for us to work with. Mm-hmm. What if people don't want to do that right away, right? Mm-hmm. And you don't get the buy-in immediately. What's your plan to get people's support on a larger scale, aside from those who are already supporting your platform? Right now, this is not an issue that is front and center. It will be. In the same way that the pandemic came about, at first people were like, I don't know, do we really have to pay attention? And all of a sudden it's like, oh my God, where do I get a mask? Yeah, <laughs> It's going to be just like that, right? Yeah. <laughs> so there's going to be a period where this becomes an emergency and everybody will be asking, how do I do it? Just like people are all asking, how do I get my vaccine? Where do I get it? Yeah. They're going to be wondering what they can do to make their house more energy efficient or to electrify uh, their life a little bit. But even in the midst of a pandemic right now, I think people are, are and to your point, they're focused on a living wage. They're focused mm-hmm. on just work mm-hmm. and wanting to pay the bills and get groceries, stay healthy, mm-hmm. yeah, stay and it, safe. Th- th- there's, there's, you have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time if you're mayor, right? We got to keep filling the potholes. We got to take care of our water infrastructure needs. There are some... And we need to be focused on trying to improve our local economy, bring every dollar we can in to benefit the local economy and create better paying jobs. So, I, I mean, really at the end of the day, I think that is what people really want is they don't, they don't want to have to change their lives too much. But a point's going to come where we're going to have to change our lives. And if Aurora's at the forefront of that movement, we're going to have a strong, thriving economy here in 10 years. You're saying this is important. This will become important and it's better for us to be ahead of the curve Mm -hmm. instead of behind. We don't see, we don't see the effects of climate change here in in Illinois as dramatically as they do on the coasts. So if you're a mayor on an East coast town, the sea level's risen eight inches. There's literally people are are talking about building walls along the the sea coast as a solution. Well, that's a bandaid. It's not a solution, but it's having an effect. Mm -hmm. If you're on the Gulf Coast, you're getting hit with a hurricane, not, not just once a year, but sometimes two and three times a year. Yeah. So it's having an impact. The impact that's going to happen in Illinois, we've seen some weather changes, more chaotic weather. If you're a contractor, you get a lot of calls, you know, my gutters need to be bigger. It's because there's more rainfall. 
So people's basements are flooding more. They're very subtle changes and people aren't connecting what it is, what the crisis is. But eventually people are going to start moving to Illinois and migrating. So it's called climate migration to places like Illinois. You think so? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yep. Okay. I think so because we'll have, we'll be able to still supply food. And it might, this really? might. Now people are going south. Are they? <laughs> <laughs> After the third hurricane and when insurance companies quit covering their damage, it'll change. They'll, they'll, they'll think, how do I relocate? Okay. Got it. I think so. And then let's talk about creating more um, thriving jobs for people here. What are your plans for that? So it starts with training. First of all, I'm not limited to only thinking about green jobs, right? If we, if anybody wants to come to our community and they want some sort of incentive out of the city, we want to make sure that they're paying a living wage, $15 an hour living wage. It doesn't do us any good to bring more high poverty jobs here. And then additionally, we need to work regionally with other cities and municipalities to set a wage standard and a benefit standard. So, you know, we, we're not being pitted against each other. Bolingbrook isn't being pitted against Aurora to get the next warehouse job at $12 an hour. And we're going to shell out X number of taxpayer dollars to get that company here to bring more poverty level jobs. We're not going to do that. We need to have sort of a regional standard. We do have state living wages. It would be great to have a, a national wage. We don't have that yet, but that's one way you can sort of equalize the playing field. But you know, if, if somebody's getting city incentives and the taxpayers are reaching in their pocket to help bring a business here, we want to make sure it's congruent with what the city wants and needs and two, that they're bringing something of benefit to the community, which is better paying jobs. So that's one way, you know, whether it's a manufacturing job or warehousing job. And then the, the job creation itself is, again, bringing those green dollars into our community, targeting the training programs in some of the lower income areas like like we talked about. And that way we know that the money is staying in our local economy. The other piece, I, I want to run this up by you because you said it. Somebody else told me that they thought if we worked with, the, say, AU or Wabonzi to have some of these tech certifications, uh, programming certifications, that that would bring more tech jobs to the area. What do you think? Yes. In some ways, yes. It gets them qualified and they're creating more skilled workers mm -hmm. and employers, they need workers. Mm -hmm. The problem isn't finding employers who need trained workers. It's the opposite. It's do I have a qualified candidate pipeline to choose from that's local? And what we end up seeing in the tech industry is if somebody gets into the door, three years later, they're, they're very competitive now. They have their pick of um, opportunities and then they can leave elsewhere, advance, but they don't stay in those positions. And so that need is always there. And so to your answer, I do think it does help with local businesses and creating and helping them sustain and at least keep it level. I'm not sure about adding more businesses though. Mm -hmm. okay. That's a different, th those are two different conversations. Okay. Yeah. What do you think? Well, I, I, again, it was an idea that was presented to me and I'm certainly open to exploring it. I but think the, adding you're, new you're, businesses is uh, you need an investment on the front end into helping develop new business ideas and ventures. Sure. So money. <laughs> yep. Right. Essentially. And so again, I'm open to using those incentives for those people that are willing to bring the better paying jobs to our community. Um, but, but the training component is a piece, wh whatever it is you're doing. Uh, this is how Silicon Valley took off as the investment in the education 
piece of it. And then all the workforce came out of there, the tech train people. Mm-hmm. So it's a piece of, of it. But the, the education component along with the incentives to create the marketplace for those jobs. But I do think businesses and how businesses operate, it already looks different within the scope of one year. And they're becoming more decentralized. Mm-hmm. Having a lot more remote workers, you don't need as much land or building space anymore. Companies are having their their teams split up across you know geography now, as before, but more so now. And I think technology is changing that landscape, enabling it in a lot of ways. Right. So and I, the pandemic. And the pandemic. And so I think it's going to look different. And so the ways that we think about how businesses come to cities and stay in cities. It has to come from a different perspective and lens now. Mm. So let's go and talk about why your why these issues are important to you. Where did this start from? How did this need to fill such a public servant role uh, come? What mm. put that desire into you? It's a good question. Or who put that desire in? When I was young, I wanted to make a lot of money. We grew up very poor. Did you grow up here? I grew up in West Africa. The Did first, you really? Yeah, yeah. The first no 12, way. Yeah, the first 12 years, my, my folks were missionaries in Liberia. So for those who don't know anything about Liberia, it's where we took about a third of the slaves in the United States after Emancipation Proclamation. And they're called American Liberians. They have a flag that looks like ours, only it's got one star. And anyway, they, they were missionaries over there. And so from zero to 12, that's where I grew up. How great, did you like it? It was a great life. We lived in a, in a jungle. So learned to climb palm trees and go fishing. I'm fascinated Home, now. <laughs> yeah, we were, we were homeschooled. My mother did not finish high school. She met my dad. He was on a mission. And literally. Literally, right? <laughs> literally. And they were pregnant with me when they first moved over there. And... You know, she taught us. So here's this woman who doesn't have a GD, but taught us math, English, mm-hmm. writing skills. They paid us a penny a page to read as as kids in our tween years. And we came back to the United States. I think I was in sixth grade and had a 12th grade le- reading level and math level. And we were able to complete everything. So very impressive person my mother is who never finished i think she got her ged sometime in the early 80s but taught you so much growing up and uh, at least gave you the 12th grade education level mm-hmm. in sixth grade yeah and now she has a small organic farm and taught herself genetics goat genetics and just a very fascinating person really and so what was that transition like from africa to here very challenging yeah well, age 12 is a, is a challenging age for any kid, I think. And you're going through puberty and trying to fit in with your peers and separating a little bit from the family. And then you throw in a cultural change and moving around the United States. So, yeah, yeah I had a lot of moving in my life back and forth between Monrovia and the village, moving back and forth to the United States temporarily for little fundraising trips for the mission. And then... You know, that Aurora was a, a big move because I was like, I'm done. I'm done moving. I'm ready just to put down roots and be part of a community. So did you guys, so when, did you guys at sixth grade move here to Aurora or when did you come to Aurora? They, so they left amidst a, a military coup. Like we were literally lived three doors down from the vice president and watched um, this attempted 
coup effort, take uh, fire M16s into the house and pull the family out. And my parents decided it was time for us to get on a plane and come back. My youngest brother. Yeah, that would do it. Yeah. My, my youngest brother's uh, mother died in childbirth and they brought him to my parents to raise. And so they literally bribed their way through this coup takeover to the U.S. Embassy, got the adoption papers finalized, and there's no cell phones during this, right? So right, you're trying yeah. to communicate to a village no Google. <laughs> 300 miles away and get an adoption done. And then my mother, they, they said my mother and him could get on a plane and fly back to the U.S. right then and there. And, and my dad took the rest of us a couple of days later. Wow. Yeah, so they, they lived in, my aunt had cancer. We lived in Oklahoma for six months until she passed away. We, we moved to Newark in 1986, November of 1986. Mm. Yeah, but they, we, they grew up very poor. So, you know, initially I just wanted to be rich. And I think the public service thing came through and I just realized, why? What are you going to do with all that money? And yeah. a lot of it had to do with my service in the Middle East. Mm. You know, I gave this brief admiral, 75% of the world's oil flows through the Strait of Hormuz. And that's why we're here. Mm-hmm. And then I saw what we were doing to destroy cultures in foreign lands all to secure oil. For money purposes. For money. Make sure BP Did, CEOs could make a ton of money. Mm-hmm. When you were growing up, though, on West Africa... Did you feel poor there? No. No. And I felt free. It's a lot of freedom. Felt free. What did you take away from being there and then making sense of the difference when you transitioned here? How did you think about that in your mind? I guess I, I haven't reflected on it too much. At the time, you're just trying to adapt to something new and survive and integrate yourself and you're always paying attention to the behaviors and things around you. I guess that's what I was thinking about at that time. What did I take with me? I guess a different perspective on the world, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So I I do see myself as a global citizen. Mm -hmm. And I think it allows me to connect to different people that come from a different background and cultural background. Because I'm always like, oh, this is curious. You know, what what is this person about? Yeah. It's the best part of, of, of running for office. You get to meet so many cool people going door to door. It's the best part. It's my favorite part. Oh yeah. And then growing up here and understanding what poverty is from a different lens. And now that it seems to be a central issue of, of your campaign and platform. It is. Sure. Yes. Because I think that kids miss out um, on the same opportunities that others could have. And I think at, at the baseline, if we're going to be a nation that offers, I think, equality, opportunity, and justice for all, which is what I think we should offer, everybody should have that basic equal starting place in life. Equality and opportunity. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you have that. And it starts in our education system. Mm-hmm. A lot of my work has been in education. You were on the, the board? Right? I was on the school board. But even before then, I, I posted something on Facebook yesterday about you know the teachers. And one of the teachers made an impact in my life. And I probably spent three years opposing uh, private charter schools. They've been private, trying to privatize schools for a long time, the business adventures. And I, I just wanted to make sure that we p- protected that baseline so everybody had an equal opportunity. But that's what led me into the 
um, school board was we had just fought off a K-12 Inc. for-profit charter school that was in uh, throughout the Fox Valley, District 129, 204, 203, uh, 308, 131. And yeah, I just got done doing that. And then somebody had asked, well, why don't you run for school board? And I, th- I thought, why not? This makes sense. Imagine that teacher now um, looking at you on the school board. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Explain the story of the teacher. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, um, you know, like I said, we grew up very poor. My dad worked for a nonprofit. My mother worked a minimum wage job at a chicken farm as a, as a crappy job. So we didn't have a lot. So I started working at age 14 on a lot of the neighboring farms. I've always had a very intense work ethic. And, you know, this one teacher realized that I was working and, and doing so much and was always tired and hungry. And so she would let me, she made me the student assistant for study hall and the student librarian. And, and then she let me sleep and she always made sure that I had food too. So yeah, she made a huge impact. And, and, you know, when she said, I told her that I, don't, I didn't think I could go to college. She's like, well, you, you should at least take the ACT. And it was $125 because I was working. I could afford the $125. I just didn't know that I could afford college, but she did. She, she, I, I did very well on the ACT, which allowed me to get into uh, Knox College or other universities that I had applied to. So, it, you know, she, she's the one that, that made a big difference. Other teachers did too, don't get me wrong. But, and I think that w- when I spent three years trying to protect teachers' pensions from a, a, basically a Wall Street money grab in Springfield, it was because I knew that they were going to make a difference in other people's lives. And, and on the school board, you know, I continue to make sure we always recognize those teachers that they could come to East train for five years and go to a different district and make more money. Mm -hmm. But a lot of them choose to stay because they know that we are an underserved community because they know those families are living in poverty because those kids need a little extra help. Mm -hmm. And so I always take my head off to, to those people. Yeah. Who just invest and and are in it. They're really Mm -hmm. dedicated to, to educating. They're dedicated to that mission and that cause and to the people that they're, they're serving. Mm -hmm. And then after the, the school board position, does that bring you here to running for mayor? They're connected a little bit. A, a lot of it had to do with that. Th- that's the poverty side is still, it was a frustration that there was not, not much you could do about it on the school board. We, we did get buses for the first time in the history of East Aurora. Which was a big deal. Oh my goodness. It was a big deal. It was an equity issue. I mean, that issue has been around for years. Mm-hmm. For year. My mom had a walk. hundred years. All of my friends had to do that walk. And... Um, so that, that was Where'd a big Where'd you go change. to school? So okay. we lived in Aurora, but okay. we went to Naperville schools because my mom lied. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it was just a long story. <laughs> okay. And then eventually we got permission from the school board to let us stay in the Naperville district. So we lived huh. on the east side of Aurora and then went to, to Naperville schools and graduated within that district. And then I went to North Central College. Well, that's good. <laughs> that's what happens. You know, boards need to have that flexibility. Yeah. So sometimes there is hard and fast rules and, you know, then people don't appreciate that they are following the rules and others aren't. But I, I do think that you, you kind of play the role of judge and jury sometimes in people's lives. So we did it a lot with expulsions and stuff. And I felt a lot of times that we would make an expulsion decision. And if we kicked a kid out, 
their path is very limited to what jobs they might have or potentially choosing a life of crime instead. Mm-hmm. And so I always chose the the side of, of giving people second chances because you make mistakes in your youth and you have to have that flexibility on the rules. I'm very much that kind of person and very much see room to give people second chances. Yeah. And, and to be, and to look at the situations and be yes. flexible in that decision. Do what's making. right for the kid. Do what's right for the, exactly. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that you have that outlook. So when we talk about wanting to run for mayor of a, of a large city, second largest city in the state of Illinois, what is your leadership philosophy for running a city government? Uh, lead by example. That's my leadership style. The people that work with me as a carpenter know that I'll be the first one that says, okay, it's time to get up from the break table and go back to work. People that served with me in the military know that I can see where we're going and take us there. I think that in this race, I've said that I'll take 25% pay cut. It's less about the budget. It's more about being an example that we're here as public servants. We work for the taxpayers. I will abide by, and I'm a union carpenter, so I I agree with union contract, but I want to get those employees who are like our teachers that decide to stay and make a difference and want to see us be this role model city. Mm. So that, that's the kind of people that we want to attract. And what do you see as the main function and role of government for the people of Aurora? The question, government is powerful. The question is, who is it working for? So I started off talking about people-powered campaigns. It's mayor for the people. That's who we're going to work for. The way government typically works is they work for big business and the wealthy and the powerful and the people who can buy access to the decision makers. So I believe in a more democratic system. What does that look like? There's a guy who's been contacting me. He's like, John, just my neighborhood is such run down and there's all this stuff. So it's just a matter of connecting him to the city resources to do what it takes to clean it up. And it's been very fun watching him be somewhat empowered by this new knowledge that he can get the government that he pays for out of his, his taxpayer dollars mm-hmm. to work for him and to, to clean up his little corner of the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Another person has kids near MLK Park. I looked at his voting record. He's never voted. He goes, okay, I'll vote for you. I was just walking by. I'll vote for you if you can find a way to get the adults to quit drinking beer, exposing themselves, peeing in public over at the park because my kids don't feel safe there. So, you know, I connected him to somebody on the park district board and they, this all happened last night. Nothing's transpired till Mm -hmm. then, but it's empowering people. That's what people powered government looks like when people come to the city and say, I've got this idea. What do you think? Right. And then them being able to come to you and then there's action behind it. There's presence working behind the scenes to acknowledge and address mm-hmm. the issue and concern. They have. If, if it has, if it's a good idea that has public support, it makes sense. I'm sure I'm going to get some not so great ideas come forward. Well, this, this. <laughs> <laughs> but what, here's another good example. Somebody had said, Hey John, why don't we recruit police out of our schools? So our police look like the community. Okay. What do you think about that? I think that's a great idea, right? And in a democracy, that's what we do. Mm-hmm. So I'm definitely open to trying it. It's we, we had a grow your own program at East Aurora, trying to bring more 
uh, kids who had gone through our high schools back to be teachers there. Mm-hmm. And, and then I think that those people give a damn about their community. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're looking for. After the school board, was there a gap between um, running or finishing there and then starting the campaign for mayor or no? It's just Yeah, no, there was a gap. I worked for Bernie Sanders presidential cycle and Rachel Ventura ran for U.S. Congress in this last cycle. Mm-hmm. She is an intense grassroots campaigner, incredibly smart woman. She's going places someday. Shout out Rachel Ventura. <laughs> yep. She, uh, she's managing my race and we both have that commitment to people powered government. And I think we're going to win this race. And I think right now America needs a win. The people need a win. Why do you think people are supporting you? What is it that your platform says and is doing that is connecting people to you? It's very simple. It's that we're going to listen to their interests and serve their interests, right? The taxpayers are able to drive the ship and they're going to have a voice in their government. And then we want a government economy that works for everybody. It's not okay to have a 12% poverty rate. Why is every elected official that serves Aurora not upset about that and working day and night to fix that? What would be your solution to address that? It, it goes back to trying to find a way to get better paying jobs. I think if, if you offer people a good paying job and economic opportunity in life or life of crime, they're going to choose the good paying job and <laughs> a nice house, opportunity to raise their family. Yeah. That's, that's what they're going to choose. Want. Yes, that's, whatever, that's what we all want. If you give them that choice or scraping by and struggling... They don't want that either. There's an argument out there that, well, they just didn't re-educate themselves. There's plenty of opportunities for good paying jobs. And, and that's not necessarily true. We have a system that shovels a lot of money to the top and lets people like Jeff Bezos mm-hmm. <laughs> have low wage employees that are struggling to get by while he takes all the money at the top and we need to fix that. And, and the government then is the one that has to fix that, the elected officials. So that is where our attraction comes from, is people know they have someone who's on their side. Mm-hmm. And I've demonstrated it throughout my time here in Aurora, throughout my life. I've been a, a, an advocate for working people, a union organizer, somebody who's led by example. And my philosophy is, if somebody's willing to fight for themselves, I'll be the second person holding a sign next to them and advocating for them. I think that's what it takes. I'm, I'm not much of a handout kind of guy. I think that we just need to create economic opportunities for those people who want to take them and empower people to achieve what they want to achieve in life. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? It absolutely makes sense. And the way that we do that is through having them earn more money, essentially. I think so. Right? I think I think so. Yeah, and, and those Parents, kids, you know, if they're making more money, their kids are going to have more economic opportunities. So right now we have a cycle of poverty that keeps repeating itself. Why can't we have a cycle of success, a cycle of empowerment? Yeah. You know? So success leaves clues. What does success look like and how can you translate that on a larger scale? Um, Are you asking what success looks like in my campaign? Because that's a a victory on April 6th. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> or are you asking for like the the positives of the campaign or just like successes in my life? I want to make sure I'm let's, answering the right let's question. Let's go with successes. Let's go a little bit more broader. Let's do successes in your life that really align to some of the core values that you're leading with on your campaign and how that looks like if you win in, in April. Two big successes. And I want to pay attention to how we achieved it because they're both we stories. They're not me stories. Okay. So one is um, ATMI Precast Concrete. Two of my neighbors worked at ATMI. It, um, concrete business? Con yeah, they prefab concrete. So they make prefab walls for warehouses. They make prefab uh, bridge components. It's all concrete. About 100 people that worked there. And they were organizing for a, a union contract, better wages. The company locked them out. They eventually contacted Northern Illinois Jobs of Justice, who, you know, I, I work for on their um, steering committee and it's, it's a volunteer position, but we organize community support. We march to the owner's house. It's a small mount, mansion on the west side of West Aurora and built support. They went and voted 90 plus percent for a union contract. And I saw the lives of my neighbors change and improve. There was some rattling of, of cages at the mayor's office and others that did business with ATMI to put pressure on ATMI to get a, this contract signed, but it happened. Mm -hmm. And so again, this was I, the room where it happened, you know, all sitting, happened. all sitting in a, in a, uh, gosh, I don't even remember what it was, a real dark room. And these men were telling their stories. It was largely in Spanish. Some of them were undocumented and, you know, we all sit and discuss the plan and it was a, is a we thing. This is what we're going to do. And then the next step, this is what we're going to do. And it was successful. The same thing, the Democratic Convention in 2016, we took a bunch of no TPP signs. It's a global trade deal that would have gutted U.S. sovereignty, um, offshore and outsourced more U.S. jobs. And it just would have been bad for America. It would have, I, I won't go into the nuanced details, but again, about 20 people meeting in a hotel, coming up with a strategy to distribute 2,000 signs and interrupt President Obama and others. And we did it successfully and it changed the entire discussion. And so for two years, workers' rights advocates had been opposing this trade deal. And it's a global trade deal, powerful attorneys and millions of dollars dumped into crafting it. And, you know, we put it front and center in a period of four to five days and made it DOA. And then we, we continued to work afterwards to lobby locally against DOA, it. I'm sorry, DOA. Dead on arrival. Oh. <laughs> wait, wait, I don't know that acronym. <laughs> no, I mean, that that effort pretty much killed that global trade deal and, and it has not been revisited for the last five years. What did so, you, how did you re react afterwards? Well, that was a small battle. We had lost the war, that one, but no, it felt good. But my point was, is that a group of people come together with the intent and purposes of doing something, achieving something is powerful. It's more powerful with we than it is with I. Yeah. And so, you know, that's how I'll run the city is trying to bring together the people that share the same vision of, of a more democratic city, a city that empowers our students, a city that says we, we care about your success and we want to see you succeed, a city that's very focused on addressing the climate crisis, uh, businesses that want to be good partners that that want to invest in their employees and make sure that they have sustainable living wage or not just scraping by to survive How, a happier workplace and a happier workplace right 
How will you in- interact with and engage your opposers? What's your plan to bring people together? I'll engage them uh, for sure. This isn't. This is going to be a very close race, and I will acknowledge the work of the others and um, work to bring them to the table. And when you start talking about a fifteen dollar an hour job, there's businesses that are concerned, and we'll bring them together and bring walk through the door together. I'm talking about police reforms and we'll do it together with the, <laughs> the people who are concerned about their livelihood as, as police officers. But okay. you know, when, when we're talking about community engagement and having our public servants be a part of our community and recruiting from our community and what role we want them to play, I don't think that there's much disconnect there, right? They, they're going to see the positive benefit. If, a police officer finds a kid who's wandering down the wrong path and we have in place a community center where they can get positive mentorship and he can point that kid in that direction, meet the parents. Yeah. No one's going to object to that. <laughs> they want that. Yeah. They want that. Yeah. What are you most grateful for? That is a good question. Okay. Before we get to that question, we could think about that one because there's two other things that we didn't hit on yet. And I want to make sure we get to those was I don't need to to explain to anyone the year we've had with COVID, the pandemic and -hmm. and the crisis, but there has been out of that the need for public safety and uh, people wanting to feel safe. And there's this division with police officers and with community and citizens. Do you have any thoughts on that? I think what people are really feeling is economic insecurity. So you think it's more money, uh, poverty, an issue of poverty? Well, just the pandemic changed people's lives, right? I mean, my very first thought was, how do I grow all my own food in the backyard, right? Because right. it was like, and I had no answer about what do I do for toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, people were worried about how are they going to survive this thing and, and the whole world changed. I mean, that was the initial phase that I think people went through, but people did lose their jobs. And to say that economic security, poverty, and crime are not connected is is false. They, they are a hundred percent. If you look at Naperville, average household income, $148,000 and next to no crime rate. You look at Aurora and 92,000 average household income, and we have a high crime rate. Look at DeKalb, double Aurora's poverty level, double Aurora's crime level, 60,000 average household income. They're all interconnected. The statistics don't lie. So to, you're to saying answer, we address economic um, insecurity? I think so, yes. That's the root cause. And, and again, it's, it all goes back to that, giving people that choice. And then there's things that we can do to transform the police force to where they are holding job fairs or, you know, Sheriff Ron Hain has done an excellent job um, putting training programs into our jail system. So while people are there, they're learning a job skill that they can come out and, and have a job and be a productive member of society with a, a salary. Mm-hmm. So I think that those sort of things are, are what we need to be doing to reducing crime. You know, there's going to be a lot of hard work between community and police to repair that damage. And this is not an area that I am uniquely skilled in other than bringing people together from opposing sides and trying to find common ground. So, uh, I'm dedicated to it, but it, there's people who are better experts and I'll recruit their help. And there's people who did this. If you recall in the, the 90s, we had 25, 30 murders a year 
and it was in the early 2000s, we started to bring the community together mm-hmm. to call for a ceasefire between gangs and to create better youth intervention programs for kids. And we can do that again. Some of those people still live here. They're very aware of it. They want to be called. They want to be tapped on the shoulder and said, we need you again. Yeah. And they're ready for it. And they want to do that. And And so it's a a matter mm -hmm. of empowering and enabling individuals. Did you use the word empowerment? Yeah, I did. (laughs) You're like, bingo. Exactly. (laughs) Empowering and enabling them Mm -hmm. uh, to do what they, they want in terms of service and outreach. What are you most grateful for? I think living in a democracy. The questions you don't like. No, this is, it's a good question. Nobody's answered, asked it before, but living in a democracy. I grew up in a country where there was no democracy. I lived in the Middle East for three years where women do not have basic rights. And some classes of people, if you're the wrong religion, you don't have any rights. So we have that here. And it's shameful that so many people don't take it more seriously. There's a woman by the name of uh, Saba Heather who's running for District 204 School Board. Uh, Her and her husband became citizens a year ago. And she's just like, I'm doing this. I want to be engaged. Because they come from a place where they had no rights. Now they have them. We've taken that for granted. I think that's one of the things my, my international roots and perspective have made me realize that we can change things. And the other thing... You know, it's it's so awesome. It must be like a teacher seeing the, the light switch go on for a kid for the first time when they grasp something, but seeing people empowered. Mm-hmm. And what's going to happen out of this campaign is there are people who are learning how to knock on doors, who are learning how to run a campaign. They're going to run for office too. Mm-hmm. So this isn't just one moment in one election. This is a movement that's much bigger and it's going to sweep across the United States that we're going to have a people-powered government. I'm confident of it. You're confident of that. Mm-hmm. It's important. And I think there tends to be a, um, like politics can be a dirty word sometimes for people. Mm-hmm. At one point you had to wake up and say, I'm going to run for mayor. I think I can run for mayor and then actually do it and then get the support and organize a team and, and put yourself in a position to where you are today. That mm-hmm. doesn't come naturally. Mm-mm. It doesn't come because you just want it to happen and a lot of times you have to overcome even just the, the belief system. I can do this. I'm ready for this. I'm made for this. Mm-hmm. And it's a we thing. And it's a we thing. We're, it wasn't me deciding. It was we. So you did, so you, we did are, you have that moment though? Or no? Like what spurred you to say, I can be mayor? It, it, was, it, it wasn't a me thing. It was, it was really a we thing. It was us sitting around saying we, we need to have a plan to model city. That's what's needed now in the, the, and who's us? the green movement. That's everybody that's part of the team. So, okay. the, uh, you know, I mentioned Rachel. Um, I'm part of a group, Progressives of Kane County. The, you know, Allison Squires runs that group. Kate Cuneo, Andrew Heyman, the a long list, Helen Ratslow, my neighbor. It's so funny. All my neighbors are all these uh, little rabble rousers and revolutionaries in my, mm-hmm. my neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what happens. We get people together, though, yeah. and good things happen, big things happen. Yeah, and we said we can do this, and we created the vision. And they're like, but, John, you're going to be the person. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready for it. Yeah. And, and my leadership style is, is bringing people together, but also sticking the flag in the ground and saying, let's, 
let's do this. Uh-huh. Right. And then people rally around the flag, I think. Yeah. So that, that I think is what's happening. In the next five years, what do you, what do you, what do you predict for the next five years? What do you see? I guess in five years, we'll see if I get a second term. Uh, I would hope so. I, what I'm talking about accomplishing isn't, isn't going to happen overnight. Like I said, very measured successes as you go along. But I predict in five years, we'll have several hydro turbines on the Fox River. We'll have uh, the beginnings of, of a new electric grid. I believe that I would like to see our poverty rate drop from 12% to seven, eight. Let's mm-hmm. m- start moving the, the meter. I believe that, um, you know, as I, as I say all this, there's this reality that I've always made people aware of that, as you pointed out, our, our economy has changed. The brick and mortar economy has changed and it's still on shaky grounds in my view as to whether the, the next mayor of Aurora just might be fighting to keep people in their homes. Yeah. <laughs> That's just a reality. And I've tried to make people aware of that, that I've got all these big grandiose ideas, but if the national economy collapses, that's going to be my job. Yes. So, so, you know, we, we might just be digging out, but I, I'm optimistic. I like to be optimistic about uh, things in life. And the other piece of it is you can't predict the future. I never knew that I would join the military. I never knew that I would seek public office. And, you know, I'm sure that the, the current mayor and all the people never predicted the Henry Pratt shooting, never predicted the pandemic, you know, there's just so much that can come at you. So I I don't like to try and cast it out, but in my vision, five to 10 years, we're starting to break that bubble to where Aurora is that cool green place where we're at the cutting edge and other, other cities are saying, look what Aurora is doing. LA is ahead of us. So LA started this four or five years ago and they're at are that they place though? now. Are they? Well, <laughs> we got, we're going to run fast. We're going to catch up. So I'll close with this question. You said you learned a lot through your past campaigns, through your, your experiences growing up and you have people on your team who are in your footsteps, but maybe earlier along that journey, what advice, what lessons have you learned um, that you want to leave for the next person? What is something that you can think of and, sh- and share that was valuable to you. Maybe you didn't get it right away. Maybe it came with time and experience. But what is that? Mm-hmm. I, I worked for a candidate running for state rep who was a teacher. I want to say in 2010, we used her basement as our campaign office. And she had this sign, your ICANN is more important than your IQ. I think that's important. You know, my mother used to always say, you can do anything you want to do in life. That's what's important, saying that you can do it I'm not going to be held back by anybody and we have a vision. We're going to carry it out. Mm-hmm. So that that's it. Your eye can is more important your than IQ. your IQ. Yes. Your eye can is more important than your IQ. Okay. So, and that's important. M- Maria Owens. Maria Owens. And that's, Im- and that was what you would leave for, for younger generation. Yep. Don't let anybody tell you you can't do it. I love it. Well, thank you for your time. Appreciate you for yeah. being here. Thank you. That was fun. 
Thank you for listening to Tuesdays with Andrea. There are hundreds of thousands of podcasts out there, and I appreciate you making the time to listen to mine. If you like this show and want to know more, check out TuesdaysWithAndrea.com or please leave a review on iTunes or drop a line in the YouTube comment section. Until next time, please stay kind in your mind, nice on the web, and stay hella hopeful in your heart.